Welcome to News Laundry Interviews. Today we have with us Barkha Dutt. Thank you so much, Barkha, for taking out the time for us to speak with us. Thank you for uh, having me. We're going to be discussing your book. And of course, we're going to be discussing television journalism, what it is today and how it got here. We can't not talk about that with you. Uh, as we record this show, India has had about 5,000 COVID cases. We have had 30 deaths, 34 deaths in the past 24 hours. But COVID is still, uh, I think today it's out of our mind space for a lot of us. We don't think of it except for people who lost loved ones, especially during the second wave, like you did. And you write about that in the book. And I think maybe an unexplored story is the PTSD that a lot of survivors of COVID or people who've lost their loved ones in that time have gone through because it wasn't just about losing someone to the virus or a pandemic, but the desperate circumstances around which it happened. Uh, you detail in your book, uh, the search for ambulance. A lot of people were desperately looking for oxygen, hospital beds. So I guess my first question to you is, how did covering the coronavirus, the second wave especially, change you as someone who was reporting the story and then as someone who also became the story? Thanks, uh, Manisha. Uh, you know, there have been, every story changes a journalist in some way, or many stories do. And in my life, there have been two such epochal moments that I almost call up until now the bookends of my career. Mm. One was reporting the Kargil war in 1999 from the front line, and the other was two years reporting the pandemic. What you heard right behind you were the sound of Bofors guns directly targeting the top of Tiger Hills, the prelude to the final assault. And the most common feedback is that oxygen is reduced and private hospital has admission to admission. I find myself having changed in ways that are both professional and personal. Personally, of course, I lost my father to COVID. And that was so surreal for me beyond the grief because as you said, I became the story I, I was consumed by. Mm -hmm. By the time my father died at the end of April in 2021, I had become the COVID reporter. You know, I had traveled all across the country in the first wave by road, 30,000 kilometers. Even during the second wave as airports opened, I was flying everywhere. In fact, I still remember when my sister called me and said that our dad was ill with COVID. I was between Gujarat and Maharashtra on the road outside a crematorium. Hmm. covering somebody else's funeral. I think I'm still trying to understand how it's changed me personally. I know that I find a certain emotional dysfunctionality. I got COVID the day we cremated my father. Yeah, Those were the only 14 days in during COVID that I actually spent indoors. The rest of the time I was always out in the field. Hmm. Um, the moment I tested negative, instead of dealing with grief, I was like, I'm getting back on the road. I didn't know what else to do. So I remember this morning so clearly, I drove to our family home and I took the urn in which my father's ashes lay. I brought it back to my home. I planted it in a you know, along with the mitti of a rose, rose bush and I set on the road again. It wasn't till I started writing this book that I discovered how much grief I was carrying around mm. for my father, but also for everything I had witnessed in the last two years. And I almost didn't write the book. And I called my publisher, Chiki Sarkar, and I told her I can't do the book. Mm. And she said, what's happened? I said, I just cry every single day that I sit down to write, and I can't write a word. So the book was actually about two months behind deadline. I finally got down to writing it with great difficulty. Mm. And I think it was the beginning of my confronting all the things I was feeling many of which I have not 
confronted fully. I write in the book about how my father used to love music, so I can't you hear. You can't listen to music. Anymore. I can't hear music anymore. Mm. I haven't climbed up the steps of the home my father and I lived in till I was forty. I'm too scared to experience what it will make me feel. Mm. Professionally, I'll tell you a little story and then I'll stop. You know, um, I'm a news junkie. Mm. When I was at Columbia in 1997, the government. Fell. It was a one-year government. It fell, and there were going to be elections again. And I was sitting in the computer lab in Columbia, and I heard there was going to be an election. And I sat all night in New York City at arguably the world's best journalism school and wept because I was missing an election. I wept because I couldn't cover the election. Now, cut to 2021, assembly elections are ha happening. I am so furious that the elections are happening hmm. that I take a principal decision that at Mojo Story. Even though this is counterintuitive to us as journalists, we will not cover these elections. Hmm. We will not cover them on principle, because these elections shouldn't be happening. How can polling booths be open when schools are closed? So I'm giving it to you as an example of a professional change. I was the kind of person who would never have been able to sidestep a big story. An election hmm. is always a big story yeah. in India, right? But suddenly, COVID. There were many mea culpa moments for me. You know how far I had personally moved away from. What people looked for in news, and it was a kind of discovery of that. It was a kind of reprioritization of content for me, hmm. and I think it's all a work in progress. I'm still changing personally. I'm still changing professionally. But these are some of the ways that I, you know, that that I can list out for you tangibly. So you said that you were consumed by COVID as a story, and also that you know this decision to not cover elections, which you would have never done probably yeah. if you were the NDTV yeah. over the big yeah. channel. So. Yeah. Uh, Uh, what was it about covid that consumed you as a journalist covid as a story uh, did it have also something to do with the fact that you had moved away from a big channel and you know you also had to put mojo yeah uh, you had to kind of make a brand for mojo what it stood for and also the fact that uh, you know you weren't any longer associated with a bigger channel because perhaps if you were in an ndtv you'd have to do the studio shows the interviews Like many of your peers, didn't venture out at that time, but they were doing studio debates and stuff like that. So, you think you would have done that had you been with NTV, mm. or you would have, anyway, mm. nevertheless, hit the road? It's a very interesting, and it's a, it's a great question. Um, one, as a child of TV, and I just want to explain uh, to a <laughs> your, your relatively younger audience what I mean by being a child of TV. When I joined uh, television, uh, there was there were no channels in India. Hmm. There was only a thirty-minute privately produced news bulletin on Doordarshan, one by NDTV, one by India Today in English and Hindi. That had to be pre-vetted by minders in government before it was allowed on air. Hmm. But I loved the visual medium. I was trained in it. It was the only thing I experienced. Many of my colleagues were migrants from newspaper into TV. Hmm. I was a first-generation TV yeah. journalist. Even today, I call myself a visual storyteller and a broadcast. I'm not a TV journalist, but I'm a broadcast, broadcast journalist. journalist. Uh, I'm saying this because I know the I know when the medium is used smartly how how magical it can be, and the power and, it holds. and the power it holds. But it befuddled me that in the biggest story, arguably in our lifetime, with some honourable exceptions of reporters who did step out in a localized sort of way, television certainly failed the COVID story. I believe that. I believe Indian TV failed the COVID story. Hmm. And I was really shocked because if I were in a channel and I had access to giant resources, I suspect I would have done even more if it was humanly possible than mm. I did. However, you make an interesting, you raise an interesting question. 
few months before COVID hit. It was towards the end of, let's say, 2019. I think it was October or November mm. that I actually started work on Mojo's story. Uh, we were video first. So we were concentrating on YouTube before our website. Our website mm. only came a few months ago, yeah. by the way. Um, and I, of course, had this, what's the word? The need to prove myself, mm. you know, that I can do this on my own. And that you as a brand can survive NDTV or outlast it. And, that and, you, and, your story is not over with quitting NDTV. Basically. Yeah, I wanted to, it was very important to me to prove that I could hold my corner of the universe. Mm. Uh, but what happened in those few months was not something anybody could have prepared me for because we went through a cascade of news. Mm. So if you just turn your mind back to that time, we had the citizenship uh, legislation yeah. protests. Um, and, and so, you know, the last couple of months of 2019, just when we had launched literally a basement mm. studio from my home initially, uh, we had that. Then we had the Delhi riots. Yeah. Right. So instead of being able to build a company and hire people and think about where this company should go, I was suddenly pushed into the deep end of news. And there was mostly me and a couple of young reporters and I was like just reporting everything myself primarily because I just love being a reporter. Like <laughs> I love it more than anything else. Yeah. And then COVID happened. And then the COVID consumed. Now, did the Mojo Story brand get built on the back of the pandemic? Yes. Yeah. Did I plan that? No, because I didn't know this is how it was going to happen. I didn't have a conscious strategy in mind. I just knew that my reporter instincts took over and I was like, how can you sit at home or inside your studio when this is happening? You know, and I think the first day I knew I had to be out there is on the morning after the national lockdown is announced. Yeah. And I go to the borders of Delhi and I see this exodus that has begun to take place of migrant workers who are walking home to their villages. And I intuitively understand, I guess that just comes from having done this job for so long hmm. that, oh my God, this is going to be gigantic. And then initially I say, I'll go out every day and I'll come back home. And that became untenable because we were hmm. driving hundreds of kilometers and we realized we just have to leave. Hmm. We have to take our chances. So I'm glad that I was able to remind myself and my audience that I am first and foremost a reporter. Hmm. I am glad that we built a new platform on old classic Hidden values. Streets, yeah. Um, I'm glad that I remembered who I was again, which I think I'd lost a little bit of sight of. Hmm. Um, but I didn't plan it in a conscious way. And it you think happened. if you were with a big channel, you would have done a bigger No, I think job that I it. think I want to say that, but I actually think you don't in reality know. I would not have been allowed to. Yeah. I would have been either told budget nahi hai, ya hum aapki responsibility nahi le sakte. Um, or then the, the number of interviews you'd have to do because every evening you'd also have to speak to healthcare professionals and stuff like that. And you know so, what? Like that's the, how the TV chose studio. to tell the story, the mm. studio expert. And yeah. you know what I discovered? We was not initially, but when we became comfortable with what we were doing, the technology, we understood how to do it. We would just stream from anywhere. So we mm. could even do shows. Mm. Even those experts were not missing on our yeah, platform. Yeah, you were I just it. didn't know why talking to the experts mean you couldn't be out there telling the story as well. Uh, I think some, one of the important things that you mentioned in your book, and we haven't actually really talked about this enough, is the 
attacks on medical workers. Yes. Uh, you mentioned in your book that the highest number of COVID-related attacks on medical workers anywhere in the world took place in India. Uh, you interviewed this nurse in Delhi who's from Kerala but who's been living in Delhi. Uh, his neighbors want him thrown out. Yeah. Uh, luckily, his landlord's a doctor, so he yeah. doesn't get evicted. But the, basically, uh, he feels, you know, he there's this hostility around him. And then you have a couple of interviews that detail that. This is crazy because parallelly, in another universe, we were also celebrating yeah. doctors and workers. Yeah. You know, the thali bajao and the lighting the lamp. How do you make sense of this ugliness that happened? Yeah. Of, you know, people going against doctors, doctors yeah. and workers feeling threatened. There's a very, uh, I think one of the most craziest thing is that woman where she's being, you know, attacked by her neighbor and her, you know, her child is watching. How do you make sense of this? Yeah. It's very difficult to decode the paradox because mm. when the Prime Minister calls for the thalis to be bajowed and the diyas to be lit, everybody does it. And one of the most poignant images for me is always the memory of going into really abjectly poor homes where somebody has died mm. because they couldn't get, um, you know, a hospital bed or an ambulance. In, some, in one case, there's been a suicide because the daily wage worker doesn't feel he can sustain his home anymore. Mm. But in all the ledges of these homes, you can see the remains of a single dia that had been lit in response to this national call. Mm. I think that the kind of stigmatization that we created around COVID, in particular in the first wave, mm. um, but it ran through, you mm. know, even through the second wave. Uh, and ignorance, stigmatization, and also fear. Sometimes fear manifests itself as aggression, sometimes yeah. as ignorance, sometimes as paranoia, it all combined. And one of the, you know, you've listed some of the tragic stories. I mean, I remember, you know, and you, you say, how have you changed as a journalist? I, mm. like when I was younger, it used to be really important to me to not show tears because mm. I used to feel I would be tagged for being female. Okay. And even if I felt like, oh my God, I think I'm going to cry. One, the classic training was you can't show your emotion, keep a distance between yourself and the story. The other thing was, and especially in the war, which I really had to fight to go and cover, that they'll all say, I'm hai, hai. Hmm. At 50, I don't care. <laughs> I care about very few things in life at 50. There's a, there's a, there's a delight to growing older, you know. <laughs> there really is. It, it just frees you in the most unexpected ways. And I tell you this because I remember interviewing a doctor, uh, a doctor's best friend in Chennai. Hmm. who had kept trying to cremate his best friend, who was also a doctor, uh, uh, not cremate, rather bury him in the cemetery of his church. Hmm. And this friend is recounting to me how they keep, they go to the church and there's a crowd of people all around who live in the residential areas and they come and they throw stones and bricks at the ambulance, the hearse that is carrying hmm. the body and they attack the wife and child of this uh, doctor who's died and they don't let the burial happen. Then they go to the next church and the same thing happens. And when this doctor was recounting the story to me, he was sobbing. Hmm. He was just sobbing. And I just found that I, this happened to me twice in COVID. Once when I was interviewing this doctor and another time in the next wave when I was speaking to a young girl whose father had been a teacher in UP who had died on pole duty mm. and she triggered tears in me because she said, you know, I've lost my father but you've lost your father so you know what this feels like and I was like, but my father was not forced into a duty that he couldn't say no to much as it kills me and I'm 50 and you're 15 mm. and just the fact that she saw she was like, you will understand. So those are the two times I wept on camera in an interview. So to go back to this 
person and you know he kept saying he said you know for people in india we are either gods or demons no one thinks of us as human beings mm. we have either been elevated to this level where we are expected to be the saviors in this crisis and fix everything and when everything is crumbling around you i am not a hero madam trust me i am not a hero i am just a human if if being a human makes someone hero we don't know how to fix it or at other times if we feel we're the evil people yeah. and there is no sense that we are human with the same flaws and the same skills as maybe other people and that really resonated with me that you know we i don't know another doctor i remember told me i feel like i've been sent to fight a nuclear war with a lathi and then yeah. i'm being faulted for it yeah. you know so of course look there's a there, like many other realities there are many layers to this mm. there were also hospitals uh who t- where poor people sold everything they had to pay hospital fees mm. and the oxygen runs short and that's not the hospital's fault but when the oxygen runs short the hospital doesn't acknowledge it they give them a release certificate that mm. says you died from a heart attack so it's not that there's no answerability you know that is that that can be mm. asked of uh, from parts of the health sector but sh- it really was left to fend for itself as were doctors as were nurses ward boys security guards you know we don't think of all the ancillary mm. staff that mm. that makes up a hospital and i don't know all i can say is extreme pra- paranoia extreme stigmatization extreme fear is probably what explains it yeah um and unequal access to health and of course rumors also the case rumors. in indore for fake example news. yeah fake news there were whatsapp messages being circulated that and this was a muslim locality i remember we done muslim a story on it muslim locality uh but the two doctors who got stoned one was hindu one was yeah, muslim yeah. and our channels tried to create hatred even out of this incident because the perpetrators in this case were muslims mm. and these two women i remember they came on i was interviewing them i'm sure you did as well and they were like we are best friends mm. we are best friends and this story this assault yes it's terrible the assault is terrible mm. but you're not going to make you're not going to divide us and you know we should talk about that the role of big media in instead of be in instead of playing a role of conciliation and healing even at a, in in a crisis managing to find ways to divide people that also leads to unsocial behavior yeah and in fact in this case there were whatsapp rumors that were basically circulating that muslims are being forcibly put into quarantine center they're going to be injected with the virus so there was a lot of like vicious or that they're spitting or that they're spitting at patients yeah. that was television news that television, a lot of yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah fake news and tv news played its part so i want to uh, talk about up because you mentioned meeting yeah. a government uh, employee and you know the election duty and the death toll yes. that led to Now there's a paradox among journalists uh, or there's a question uh, that a lot of journalists ask especially after the UP polls and it's interesting to ask you this question because you traveled Uttar Pradesh yeah. you met a lot of people and you document that there was a lot of anger against the administration that everyone failed us and it wasn't as if there wasn't anger towards the government mm-hmm. uh, but then you have the elections and yogi government comes back and a lot of journalists were left answering asking that how did this happen mm-hmm. just on the you know right Six or seven months after the second wave, yeah. you had visuals of people screaming at the government, yeah. and then you had them vote them back again. How do you understand this as a you know as someone as a political journalist, mm-hmm. as someone who met uh, people back then? Did people two questions I have on this? One is when you met people who either lost their people, you know, family members, or uh, people who suffered through the virus, like most of us did. 
could they directly um, i mean did they directly blame the government for it or was it hamara fate aisa hai circumstances aise hain log aise hain and then how do you explain the government coming back after such a devastating second wave yeah okay there are lots of questions in there let's start with the teachers who died uh, on pole duty in up which i really think is a travesty um and it, and to some extent it remains in my opinion an underreported and un, un, i'm not saying it's an untold story but it's an undertold story hmm. uh, what happens you basically have teachers you know they're not they're not election commission employees they're teachers in government schools they, you know i remember a pregnant woman yeah. who, who who dies her her dream had been to be a teacher you hmm. know and they are sent into Uh, sort of being the, the polling officers because there's first local elections mm. and then of course later you have um, you know the other elections that take place and all of these families at least when i met them when i documented them they mm. all said that they wrote to their local sort of administrative and bosses said and said we don't want to go and some in some cases they were threatened with disciplinary action with losing their jobs if they didn't show up but to be completely empirically accurate the yogi adityanath government did not agree with they actually in court hmm. in alabad high court said that we don't want these elections to be held hmm. let's postpone them yeah. and the alabad high court ironically which later ordered compensation for the families that had died a different bench said please go ahead so one that that has to be put on record hmm. that the adityanath government did not support the local elections being held when hmm. they were So I think this has a lot more to do with how power is also organized in our country, where a government school employee is telling maybe his or her immediate boss, "Ki mujhe nahi aana hai, main nahi aana chahta," and they say, "Arey aao nahi to," and that nahi to fear created that anxiety that I don't have the option to say no to this. Now let's step back and look at the larger picture. I always say that we need to understand politics. through multiple prisms at the same time hmm. right uh my own experience from traveling across the country was that there was a mix of fatalism anger and cynicism okay in rural india there were people who just died at home they simply died at home uncounted because they'd never been tested they never managed to get to a hospital to be tested in some cases they went to a hospital and they died on the street on the ambulance and there was a kind of a very very heartbreaking kind of acceptance of their place in a society where probably they've they're not unused to spending long hours on a pavement you don't need to go any further than delhi's all india medical mm. institute at any point you will find cancer patients so the collapse the of the medical system wasn't new to them as it was such. it was new to our class mm. because we had never experienced it but it was actually not new mm. maybe not at this scale but that sense of not being able to get a doctor when you need one was not a new phenomenon for the poor of rural mm. india secondly the 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 paranoia and the stigmatization meant many people didn't want to get tested mm. and thirdly they didn't know where to get tested they didn't know how to get tested and the lockdown especially in the first wave really complicated things because instead of being a uh, a measure to protect people uh, the police paradoxically both both heroes as frontline responders but also perpetrators of violence once weaponized by the state mm. against the poor um you know the poor became terrified of the police as they tried to walk home or you know even try to i remember interviewing a man who 
was a rickshaw driver and his work had stalled. So he was trying to walk to the Sabzi Mandi to buy vegetables for cheap. He was in violation of the lockdown. He got beaten by the cops and, you know, left outside a public hospital. So I guess what I'm saying is there was a certain degree of... It's not that there wasn't anger, there wasn't disappointment, hmm. but there was also a certain degree of fatalism. However, it is also important to underline that when we talk about government accountability, where was the opposition hmm. at this time? Where was the opposition? It is not as if people saw ki, the other party on the streets. Ki, ye ko, we are feeling betrayed by our government in this state and now the other people have come to our help. Here are the politicians who are working with the workers. Here are the politicians who are running relief camps. Mm. Here are the politicians who are running oxygen lungers. You see, when, especially if you look at the second wave, by the time the second wave happens, civil society, to a large measure, people mm. are plugging gaps yeah. that have been left abandoned yeah. by the state. So even if there was, and there was, mm. disappointment and some anger, uh, with the Modi government. There was also disappointment and anger which is localized, which is with your immediate state government. It wasn't that you... And in fact, sometimes there was greater anger with the local government than there was with the central government. Because and it, local administration, like you said, like the person just above you ek refused. Upar, ek upar, and you don't necessarily make that connection no, all the way to... No, and they also, a lot of people looked around globally and said, and the sense that the world was struggling. So given that the world was struggling, hmm. uh, if India struggled, it was natural and that the government had done, yet the government had made some mistakes, but so had governments across the world. And, and and therefore, a lot of anger was localized. Hmm. There was a lot of forgiveness of the anger that was felt with this with with the central government, because it was contextualized, uh, you know, in the context of what the world hmm. was going through. But you cannot dislocate any of these political conversations with other things. Who else was there? Hmm. What had they done during this crisis? Were they out among the people? Hmm. Were they grassroots mobilizations? There were one or two politicians who earned accolades like, you know, uh, Srinivas. I see. But again, it was a Twitter thing. It was Twitter. The grassroots was important. Like how yeah, many people, people on in the ground? Dis yeah, on the so, so you're saying, okay, I'm not seeing anybody else. Hmm. And then the other factors come in, right? The BJP wins elections for a multiple combination of reasons. Nationalism, Hindutva, the popularity of the Prime Minister, microeconomics, welfare schemes, hmm. uh, the lack of an alternative. And you cannot lose sight of these yeah. reasons in a crisis where nobody else hmm. has stepped up to actually plug those governance gaps. In fact, in Uttar Pradesh, we met a lot of people uh, who felt taken care by the central government because of the direct benefit schemes. I was just saying, welfare schemes yeah. are very, the free so, rations, uh, for instance, in UP. Yeah. Big Contrary factor. to what you'd assume, you'd see on the ground that people felt that thanks to him we survived the COVID wave. Because, you know, we had money coming in, we had food coming in. I actually met a lot of people who said, Dekhi, kitna pura dunya safar kar tha. Modi ji ne acha kaam kiya. They, He did a relatively good job. But I'm saying even those who had hmm. criticism did not see an alternative who they thought would have done better. And often the Prime Minister was able to keep a distance from the anger in states because it was with the immediate administration or the immediate political parties in government. 
Now, uh, we were watching a lot of your videos in the newsroom, uh, you know, Mojo and BBC, I think Yogita Lamaya's uh, video reporting also. And in fact, Abhinandan would really uh, tell a lot of our young reporters to watch your video reports because, uh, you know, he'd say that if there's someone in the industry who really knows how to tell a story through video, it's Barkha. <laughs> and I am more fond of you in the studio. I, you know, I think what you did with NDTV, you know, the kind of debates that you were able to do with we the people, you don't see that anymore yeah. in the sense you had such a variety of people from the right, from the left, yeah. there was conversation happening. It's almost soothing now to look back to those, hmm. you know, yeah. you have a Manishankar Ayer versus uh, Swapandas or you'd have a yeah. Shashi Tharoor and Arun Jaitley and stuff like that. I'll come to that later. But my first, uh, I think for, you know, young journalists who are watching this uh, and especially people who want to join television or broadcast, what are the elements in a video story, according to you, that really make it come alive? And during your uh, COVID reporting, do you have any one video report in your mind that you think, wow, okay, everything came together beautifully for this piece and, you know. Okay, this, I'll start with the beginning. Uh, TV is not doing or is hardly doing hmm. those kinds of pieces anymore. Mostly because TV has become talk TV. And hmm. I, I know that there's a certain place for talk TV. For example... Uh, you know, when I hosted We The People, I really did try and make it a show that reflected not just the voice of politicians, but of people. And mm. and uh, one of the things that bothered me the most when I left NDTV is that I actually felt that I had earned the copyright over that show. <laughs> and I almost contemplated legally fighting for it. I did, I, you know, and the best I was able to do at that point was to create another property called We The Women. Mm. Uh, I contemplated legally fighting with NDTV. I didn't think it was fair, but then I knew that as a young reporter, when I first started doing with the people, I did for 16 years, I had signed away the copyright. So I didn't have a great legal case, but it's something to think about. But look, I always tell my colleagues or even trainee journalists, when you go to tell a story, it has to do one of three or four things. Hmm. It has to make your viewer feel something. The feeling can be empathy, anger, or inspiration. It has to be one of those three. Hmm. Or it empathy, has anger, inspiration. So those three key emotions. One of them. One. I'm okay. not saying you look for everything, but, but either move somebody, either make somebody feel, oh my God, I feel this person's pain. Or say, oh wow. Or hmm. anger. Like, why is this happening to this person? If your report from a ground doesn't make somebody feel these things. One of these emotions, you have not told the story well. Hmm. Secondly, macro storytelling has to end. It it just doesn't work, right? So elaborate what, that a bit. Okay. So if I tell you that a hundred million migrant workers were impacted by the pandemic, you're hmm. going to say, "Oh my God, that's a really big figure." But are you going to feel? I doubt it. Hmm. But if I tell you that now I will tell you the story of Mukesh Mandal, a house painter who sold his phone for 2000 rupees, bought a table fan, some chawal and gehu, came home, gave it to his wife Poonam. Poonam was happy. She thought, ghar mein khana hai. But the next day he took Poonam sari, tied it to a bamboo pole and took his life. Hmm. He's a migrant worker from Bihar. Yeah. You are, and in that report, I then tail end it by saying, the this number, is not just thing. Mukesh Mandal's story. This is the story of X number of million people. Your audience cares because hmm. you've made them feel one of those four things. We still do in our industry a lot of macro storytelling. We pull out reports, we give big numbers. All of that is important. But you know, it doesn't make people feel because hmm. it's distant. 
you have to and listen i have been criticized for this okay i have been <laughs> criticized for being the over emoting reporter in the field are to drama hai ye all of it like i said water off a duck's back because i i don't think these are conscious things but i think one thing conscious in my mind Hmm. like it's not consciously that you plot that i'll make somebody cry i ye nahi hota but the one conscious thing in my mind is what will my reader/viewer feel after this report hmm. have i made them feel something and if i can't make them feel something then i must inform them of something they didn't know hmm. i have to either create feeling hmm. information or information i can't do neither hmm. i'm neither telling you something if consequence and the problem with giving only information without emotion is the information won't be processed there will yeah. be some glazing over so it will move you to stop and notice the number so you won't register it you won't register it so that's the macro storytelling that has to end thirdly it helps me that i came from a technically trained background that i understand something about editing and sound and pictures and i feel that that is now a dying it's dying in our profession the way pictures can tell a story is why we are in this medium as mm. opposed to in a newspaper right or in a text only medium mm. and i i always tell kids this example i said you know you have to change how you tell a story depending on the medium you you're telling it, it for yeah. so like when i went to cover the tsunami um i remember this family and i walked into their home the home had been washed away and there was a clock and the clock was stuck at 3 pm and the clock was floating in the water mm. and i said to 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 kids i would talk to later i said listen i opened my story with this visual and i wrote in my script time stood still in okay. nagapattinam right now if i was writing the same story for a newspaper where the visual didn't exist i would have to describe the water the hut yeah. the clock the whatever so what we you know i really consciously look for this how do you make the pictures speak how do you make sound speak so that's third um in terms of i don't know i don't know which report of mine i would pull out which i think really everything came together because a because there was there were you know it was such a extraordinarily painful time that mm. almost everything was kind of kind Coming of up. moving uh, but i remember doing this story of profiling a hospital mm. it was just the story of the ambedkar hospital in delhi and my father was already in hospital by then it was the second wave and i remember meeting a young boy who had been made to sign a piece of paper which basically said that if my if his father died mm. from a shortage of oxygen it would not be the hospital's liability and that okay. was the condition on which he was being admitted and i decided that day to spend 24 hours at that hospital and profile that hospital hmm. and it was just the story of a hospital it was 24 hours at a hospital and telling the and i think there it was it's harrowing to watch hmm. right? it was harrowing to report but it kind of brought together all of these all the elements. elements yeah that i'm talking about you know the empathy the inspiration the information that oxygen is short so hospitals don't have oxygen so it ticked those boxes so i thought it was a more rounded complete piece of storytelling there there is no icu bed in hospital in any of the hospitals how many hours have you been on the road it's been since morning 9 9 o'clock since morning we are roaming here and there now one of the criticisms uh, you received during the coronavirus uh, reporting was making yourself the story mm-hmm. where um, the criticism is basically this that uh, 
do you have to tweet out you know for example your workstation near the pavement do you have to tweet out that you're here uh you know the process of the story becoming a story itself and yeah. this is something that you see among a lot of social journalists who are digital first journalists yeah. you know many young reporters also or many people within the digital space the story matters but also the marketing of the story on social media mm-hmm. matters a lot so did did you view that as uh, a marketing technique that you had to kind of do because now you don't have a big channel that will broadcast mm-hmm. to everyone or and or, and what do you make of that making the process of getting a story a story itself so one is that i have learned something quite peculiar about myself <laughs> that that i am i am often the story whether i want to be the story or i don't want to be the story i'll come to i'll come to as one of the first stars of television news yeah but good and bad both hmm. right so i'll i'll give you an example from before digital i hundreds of journalists are covering 26 11 hmm. right um and I don't know if people remember this but there was no guidance from government at that time yeah. on the fact that there were handlers in Pakistan who were monitoring the siege. Mm. It was only after 2611 that the news broadcasting association came, came up in. with self regulation guidelines yeah. including on live programming. Mm. Now I am a cog in the wheel. I have not taken a decision to do live programming, right? This is well above my pay grade. When it's live it's a management decision. It's a cross industry. Oh my god the number of questions i've had to answer for why it was live you know and by the third day it wasn't because without guidance yeah. we understood ki oh my god in fact a lot of channels then started saying we are re, you know delaying the including uh, us at that yeah. time with ntv but i'm giving it to you as an example of it is not unusual in my life for from kargi from good and bad look this happens even for the glory mm. moments so let's also say that mm. that that sometimes people may turn around and say but there were also 100 other journalists covering x and y how did you become the face of it yeah. now Again, i will la- one more criticism that you got for covid that you weren't the only uh, person out there covering but there were I, younger reporters also i'm sure they were i mm. met some of them yeah. and i always say that i believe tv i continue to believe much to the annoyance of uh some of my colleagues i continue to believe and i will say it again indian tv news failed covid and missed covid that doesn't mean that there wasn't one reporter in lucknow and one reporter in tamil nadu mm. but as a collective out. industry but as the industry tv didn't define covid coverage at all tv didn't define the audience response to covid at all and i stand by that statement secondly we cannot control nor do we need to apologize for being liked more hmm. and if that sometimes means being hated more it comes with the territory hmm. right i don't sit here and say i'm a victim because you know what why do i keep getting criticized more than others <laughs> because i also know that when i get praised i also get praised more than others i know that i have a distinct persona a distinct individual style and i know that i will i may be loved or hated but i'll never be ignored and hmm. that's fine So but that's the process becoming fine. the story yeah, is I'll something come to that. on I'll come to that because the process I hmm. actually very much believe in the process being part of what you share with the audience okay in particular in covid hmm. where it was an extraordinary discovery for me technology where you set up the circumstances in which hmm. you were doing your show people would ask me by the way it is because i shared so much of that process that i think i got the following i did hmm. because people got interested in where are you sleeping tonight okay where do you what do you eat strangers started sending me food there was a lady in in bombay who said 
I've just been seeing you in the same shirt now for the, can I wash this shirt for you? I said, <laughs> really? You would wash this shirt for me? So in a bag, I dropped a bag of laundry. She would do my laundry for me. She became a friend of mine. I had no clue about her. Um, to, 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 to make people participate in this. Look, there will always be people for whom there's a too muchness to it or who will see it as marketing. I don't see it as marketing. Mm. I see it as a very natural part of, you know, people always say the great thing about social media, it's democratized the dialogue. It's no longer a monologue. So here, this is me. You mm. can know me. You can talk to me. I'm letting you into my life. And I think the process of reporting COVID is almost as much of a critical story to Point share the story. as the story itself. Because there is a larger media discovery here mm. that we do need to talk about. So I have no regret, no <laughs> apology. Uh, I couldn't care less about that criticism. Mm. I think there are there's always an audience for something you believe in. Mm. You have to be true to yourself. You can't constantly be explaining yourself to everybody. You'll never get anywhere like that. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. But do you think like this is more a function of Mojo being a digital platform? Do you think like you would have done this for TV too? Again, the same. I think so. You, you know, if you look at my, I don't. Because it was I, an extraordinary time, like you said. Yeah. Like being and, on the pavement. And, and honestly, over. honestly, if I had a mobile phone in, you know, in, in other circumstances, I'd report it. I mean, the point is I'm so bloody old and I've been around so long that people don't remember that. You know, I'll tell you strange things that have happened in our lives. Cargill. Hmm. Cargill describes India's first television war. Hmm. Hello. There were no mobile phones in Jammu and Kashmir. There were no broadcast vans. Hmm. So we would have no way to even tweet. A, there was no tweeting a picture. Yeah. There was no... Not at all. You right? I mean, there was none of that. Even till like 10 or 12 years ago, it wasn't that Because emphasis. that technology, yeah. one has to that technology, that access didn't exist. Hmm. And, you know, I'm not saying that I would be live tweeting a war. I'm just giving an example that... Today, for example, you have reporters going to Ladakh to report and they mm. can say this is the last point up to which we're attacked, we're, not, uh, uh, we're allowed, we're not allowed to show you mm. anything more, but we'll show you these pictures. Using pictures and your own engagement with the location is very much a function of the age in both TV and digital. Mm. So there's no need to apologize for it and that's a part of it. I yeah. think it's fine. Yeah. I think people, here, here's how I'll frame it. I think people will eventually respond and there will be no one view on this. To whether they believe it's showmanship hmm. or whether they are drawn by those, you know, um, glimpses into somebody's process. Um, and I think... And then find something valuable finally in what is being yeah, delivered to you. or not. As long as it doesn't just stop at the showmanship. It can't stop yeah. at the showmanship. <laughs> See, if your work doesn't... I think the work eventually has to speak. If the work doesn't speak, then, then you know this is showmanship. You know, there are people, and I, I mean, I'm not going to name names much as you'd like me to, but there are people whose beginning and end of being a journalist is social media. Is social media. That can't be it. Hmm. If, if I shared with you that this is where I put my laptop, this is where I slept, and I never gave you 300 videos, <laughs> right? You know, kill me now. But I didn't do that. And you're allowed to not like me hmm. absolutely but I don't have to agree with your dislike of me I don't have to become some other version of me to please you I'm going to be who I am and I'm going to always believe that there will be people who like that there will be people who will hate it there will be people who like bits of it and there'll be people who won't like bits of it and it's fine isn't real life like hmm. that who do we like in entirety and who do we you know 
Yeah. I mean, there are people like the second entirety, but and like you said, if you if you can get the praise, then you should be okay with the big bad. And also. I'm okay, and I am okay. Now, uh, on your book, uh, go back going back to your father's illness, you say that um, you know this is when you you first get to know that your father's infection, uh, you know, it's mild, but he's got diabetes. Yeah. He's in his eighties. You say that evening uh, on your digital platform, I wrote about needing to find the balance between being a distraught daughter and a clear-headed, committed professional. Now, this is one of the great arguments uh, or the debates of our times in newsrooms, mm -hmm. finding that balance between personal life yeah. and being a committed professional. Yeah. You were talking about that before yeah. the camera started yeah. rolling. There is a generation, and you saw that especially during COVID, the younger generation that felt that, look, no story is worth my mental health, my peace of mind, and my physical safety. Yeah. So if I don't want to go there, don't push me out. Uh, if I want to switch off from this story, don't expect me to go out and do yeah. it. And then there is an older generation. I think I'm somewhere in the middle of this, mm -hmm. uh, which felt that look, uh, it doesn't matter. You just have to go out uh, because if you're not going to do it, someone else will do it, and the story must be told. The show must go on. You can yeah. suffer from COVID, get back to work, or you're you know you may have a lot of things happening in your family. It doesn't matter. Where do you weigh in on this great generational clash, yeah. as we spoke? Um, and this is a huge discussion on yeah. newsrooms now. Look, I am from the generation that is defined by work. Hmm. So that is the first important thing to understand. If you took, but is, there, is that your generation or is that you? It's 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 my generation, but it's also more me even within my generation. Okay. So you're I an outlier even in that. <laughs> I think I think I simply love what I do. Hmm. I mean, I love what I do. I have fought uh, at times to. To, to report some from some of the most dangerous places in the world. I love it. Not everybody mm. wanted to tell those stories, right? Not everybody. Some people, like you said, didn't think the story was worth the risk. Mm. That's a personal choice. Mm. But I also feel the generational clash is, is very deep and it's very real. And it's not just there in media. It is there across professions. I have friends who are lawyers, friends who are bankers, and they all share the same thing that while while we believe that our identity is work and then other things, uh, the Gen Zs in particular appear to believe that work is a side hustle, hmm. a side column, and there are other things that define them. Hmm. I, am, um, I am puzzled by this because I believe that certain professions are not structured. Journalism hmm. is one of them. You cannot predict You'll go to sleep today and you'll wake up and, you know, the world has changed because mm. something has happened. COVID is an example of it. But every day there's something that can happen that you didn't account for and therefore you can't predict for. Mm. So I tell young people that if you want to be a journalist, you must please do it if you love it. Mm. Please do it only if you love it or you think you will love it. But if you have a preference for a more ordered life, then maybe this is not the profession mm. for you. I don't know that it's possible to be a news journalist. It's possible to be a filmmaker. It's possible to tell stories about contemporary issues in some other way. But I don't know if it's possible to be a daily news journalist and want a ordered, shift-defined, shift-oriented life that where you just tune out. Mm. I, I don't think that... I mean, of course, it's possible. I don't think that that will be then the, the profession in which you will rise. Mm. You, will, you will survive it, but you won't necessarily excel in it. 
right? Uh, because it's just that kind of profession. And I think it's much better to be upfront with people and say, this is my understanding of journalism. If you do not agree with my understanding of journalism, you must have the foreknowledge of knowing that's my philosophy. And you don't have to maybe train with me or find your feet with me because this is what I believe. Hmm. That said, I don't know how does news laundry deal with it? How hmm. does wire deal with it? How does the print deal with it? Because these are universal questions. Yeah, now. these are newsroom debates now. These are newsroom debates. And of course, you can't force somebody. Like, I, like if suppose I had a colleague who told me, you want to go around the country in COVID, you please go. Hmm. I'm not interested in... I can't say no. If you work with me, you have to go. <laughs> no, hmm. you can't do that. Absolutely not. You can't force anybody into an assignment. That's, that's not okay. Hmm. But over time, if a person just constantly seeks a predictability, a structure, uh, a, a, a kind of, I, I, I don't know what word to use, but you know, will not ever step out on a, on, a, on a day off, will not adjust the day off with another day off while news is breaking. What it tells you is that this is not their passion. Hmm. It at least tells you that, that this is not their passion. This is not what they love above all else. Hmm. This is one of the things in their life. Now, I still come, and I know it's a privileged position. I know there are people who are working for survival. There are people who are working because they need to earn. But if you have a choice, if you're privileged enough to have a choice economically, hmm. I would still say, Please do this profession only if you think you will love it. You're allowed to do it and find you don't love it. But at least enter believing that you will love it. Don't enter thinking it's just another mm. job if you have that privilege. I totally understand if you don't have that privilege and you're doing it just as a job. I think there are two aspects to it which uh, make me think of what you've said. One is that I think, uh, and this is something Madhu also you tell us, that you know when we were younger journalists, we'd go to villages, people would really welcome us. Yeah. Journalists were... Welcome. Yes. People are excited to have journalists to come tell their stories. Now, you're, it's probably the most abused uh, profession. I don't know if you've seen the wire list where you are the second most abused woman journalist. So, hang on. What my point is that um, there was this satisfaction where earlier journalists would push themselves in a profession which if it didn't reward them financially because salaries are not that great and they're still okay. Very few people rise up to the top and then can command the kind of salaries they want. Uh, it starts off bad. It takes a long time to reach that place to, you know, make yourself important or command the salaries you want to. And then after that, it is not even rewarding in the sense that uh, you're abused and you're not loved. Work-wise, I don't think we as journalists perform way more. Like, come on, you can't compare a doctor during COVID to a journalist. Of course, of course. You know, like, of course not. We were working, no comparison. Yeah. No comparison. But the thing is that it's become less... Or even on other frontline responders, police, security. Yeah. I mean, there's so many people And then people in broadcast journalism, you have the other problem of having newsroom leaders like a Rahul Shivshankar. Mm -hmm. Or, a, you know, an Avika who, you know, they'll read out WhatsApp chats and, you know. So, you don't even have that satisfaction of being mentored towards something you know, uh, worthwhile or something that is true public interest. So then in this industry, hmm. you kind of get that why? I, I, I'll tell you something though, I wanted to, I was trying to jump in because I wanted to say that one of the discoveries for me in these last two years of the pandemic, I felt really loved. And I realized hmm. that 
this and it 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 empowered me further to be able to actually be totally thick skinned about oh uh, tumne ye photo kyu tweet kiya and most of this kind of carping actually comes from fellow journalists if you pay attention to it right um it was a big discovery that there was a disconnect i'm not saying that always exists sometimes the toxicity online does spill over offline and we see that but there was a big disconnect between the trolling online and oh my god i'm telling you i have survived these two years because people fed me bathed me mm. sent me jootas my shoes broke somebody opened their dukan for me and this was strangers these mm. were not I, my car broke down people were like offering their cars i felt very loved mm. i really felt very loved and I, it reminded me that if you're able to do your job in a way that connects to your audience hmm. not connects to uh, too many journalists including myself have done journalism for other journalists too many of us do work for approvals from peers hmm. too many of us will not take a position today online because either our friends on the left or our friends on the right are going to to yeah. disapprove we need to cut all that out and I'm not saying you have to be populist and have some idea of what the people want. Just try and pick up issues that speak to people. I think people's responses change. I mm. think the fact that I am repeatedly approached by women, for example, repeatedly, please tell our story. You know, my my sister was burnt. Can you help her get justice? My daughter, this happened to her. Can you help? I am approached by people. Mm. Obviously, people see a space, a safe space, where they feel their voices will be raised on their behalf. Mm. I think we make too much of yes journalism is not what it was we are not liked in the way that we were but there are spaces and work that still create that very deep connection with people mm. I feel loved I do feel loved uh largely I know there's hate I know there's criticism but largely I feel loved mm. um when you step out of the online space yeah. right and 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 secondly to your larger question what should they do it all for Mm. right that's a tougher question to answer because honestly what has been done in particular to tv news in this country is such an abomination that if i were to tell a 18 year old girl today I, i'm saying girl it could be a boy also mm. if i were to tell a young woman of 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 18 or a young man who were asking me for career advice should i join a channel i would say no mm. i would say no so these are two different debates mm. we have destroyed television news and you know i say in my book in the beginning that i can't disassociate myself from the responsibility of this because i too slipped into this kind of talk tv look there's a space for talk tv i do a bottom line with barkha on mojo story mm. every evening at 5 i love doing it i enjoy doing it and good conversations can be really interesting and But you can it learn a lot but it can't be all that you do you have to step out sometimes mm. or the issues that you pick up like i said we are just Look I've had to unlearn this right there was a time and I say this in my book that that you were you you felt that you were as successful as the big interview you landed or the big guest you got mm. on your show ye mera exclusive hai you have to if i get a in, good interview i'll do it happily i'll i'll chase it also to some degree but you have to unlearn that being the epicenter of what you do because there your kudos are coming to you or your you're being watched by your competitors by your peers you're actually doing work you're actually doing journalism for other journalists we're all in this trap to some degree mm. and we've got to stop it but then the precedence of talk tv is also when you incentivize 
and again we go back to salaries a reporter will never earn as much as a star anchor will and it's wrong and and then when you are incentivized you know and salary is at the end of the day what you take home and that's how you judge yourself largely in your professional space so when that starts to happen why would anyone be incentivized to go out and report because anyway it's a hassle it's much and easier to do and that is a fair question and i will tell you that from my years at ndtv when i was editor of the group when i was senior anchor uh, and i've been both an anchor and a reporter and i would always say that we are doing the wrong thing by incentivizing anchors over reporters because there will be no incentive and it's not just money it's also mm. profile it's also who you develop as a brand in prime time yeah brand mm. who's your brand who's mm. your brand who are your front facing uh, sort of names and they would almost always be anchors now once you start doing that the priority of the newsroom changes more resources are given to the anchors so an anchor will have a 10 person 12 person team assisting her or him and listen i've been an anchor so i can't say oh hey i was a victim mm. reporter in that way but i would constantly argue against this it was one of the things i would have wanted to change in a newsroom that i ran for some years and i failed to change hmm. uh, i always say that i think the beginning of the end of tv news in this country was the day we started prioritizing or privileging anchors over reporters yeah right so i agree with you on that it's a mistake and no one's ever going to want to be a reporter if they think that all the glory all the money all the praise all the attention comes to the anchor hmm so how do we solve this crisis of content where are you going to yeah. get content from them content again i say i do a studio show every day i don't i i used to love you know i used to love doing an audience show i love what i do now i love the daily show i do i love a good interview i love a good conversation i'm not saying let's get rid of talk there's a great place for it it's also the quickest way to access stories that are happening all across the country mm. you dive right in but somewhere both in the subjects and the composition of the guests you call mm. are you mindfully democratizing that space is your space of guests the choice of guests look i'm a woman owned woman led company and even then on occasions we end up with manals hmm. even then on occasions and i will say how do we have four men why do we not have at least one woman hmm. so there are many things that you can do even within talk within that structure to make it more people oriented to make it more people friendly and at least sometimes when the world's biggest story comes knocking at your door hmm respond respond <laughs> we're going to come back to that later on you know the crisis in television news but your former uh, organization has been in the news mm-hmm. ndtv's imminent takeover by adani uh, now we at news laundry had reported on this story around 2016 where we basically said that there's a vulnerability with rrpr where there's a loan that has come from a reliance front company yeah. uh, and it essentially means that it could be turned into equity at any point so there was this uh, indebtedness to reliance so to speak now you were at ndtv at that point my uh, i want to of course come on what you think of the whole takeover thing and conversations mm-hmm. around it but when you were there was this ever a point of conversation with the roys uh, the health of the company the loan what it could mean and did it lead to ambani or reliance being a holy cow within the ndtv space so I should preface this by saying that I had uh, not the happiest uh, equanimous parting with NDTV and when I did quit and I quit over the censorship of two of my stories mm. um I did some very public posts on how I felt very cynical about what had happened mm. 
the reason I would be more cautious in what I say today is not because I've suddenly become a diplomat. I, I still remain as undiplomatic as ever, but because I do not believe in uh, judging people when they're down. I think that's not a uh, good grace. I mm. think I, when I lashed out at them, they were powerful. I was, you know, the person on the outside and mm. I felt much more free in saying what I thought. So I'm not going to say uh, a lot of things I might have said in another context. But I will say this, that NDTV's employees, including its senior leadership, did not know about this loan hmm. till much later. Um, I personally got to know about this loan hmm. from the Reliance at a time when they were actually offering me a job to lead CNN IBN. Okay. Right? Uh, I had no idea. You had no idea when you were with them? Nothing. Uh, you also have to understand that I was not involved at all with management. Hmm. Um, not the business side. Nothing. Right. Like I, but there was a caravan story that came out. I, and, uh, I mean, that caravan story uh, implied, um, in, in you know, one day we will have a separate conversation about the Neera Radia tapes hmm. uh, because I really believe that journalists uh, actually completely destroyed the idea of a background conversation with the source because of how they covered other other journalists, uh, you know, who were on those tapes. I was one of them. Hmm. But the caravan intriguingly wrote when I kept saying, hey, what did I get out of this but a story? I, I, I really remember this. Uh, I, I, and intriguingly wrote that what I got out of it was the loan. I. Yeah, that was that was in the caravan story. The implication was that I was the mediator, the go-between for the loan. And I have never laughed as much as I have laughed when I read that. I don't remember that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Story. The allegation basically in, I don't know what else was in the caravan story. That's all I remember of it. Okay. Uh, in context to myself, I don't, of course, this had a lot to say about NDTV and hmm. you can ask your follow-up after that. But the implication was that when I kept saying, hey, what's in this for me? Hmm. And the implication was that what's in it is what's in it for NDTV. So there was a kind of equivalence mm. drawn ki jo NDTV ko mil rahe wo mujhe mil rahe. First I want to say, if I can organize a 400 crore loan, would I be doing it for NDTV or would I be doing it to start, start a company of my own? Question one. Mm. I had no idea. The short answer is I had no idea about this loan okay. till I was offered a job by CNN IBN to be their editor. Mm. I eventually declined that offer. My old colleague Rajdeep was still there. He eventually, you mm. know, left or was asked to leave. I don't know. But I declined because I was just not comfortable for a variety of reasons. That is when I was told by people within the organization that, hey, don't you know mm. where you work? We effectively have this much ownership of the company. That is how I discovered it. So then was there ever a point of discussion with the Royals? No. No. You didn't think that you could as... There was the a, face of the channel. There was a much came. later time, and I, I won't be able to say much more, when it was anticipated that there was going to be a story on this. And a couple of us were taken into confidence about it. And my point at that time was, why don't you just issue a public statement and say hmm. that this is how much, uh, you know, whatever, against, pledged against shares is the hmm. effective possible ownership if were you not to pay back the loan. And I was told that, you know, I, I mean, it's kind of saying this is not your space. This is not your thing. We're just informing you because the story is coming. The story mm. eventually never came. By the time the stories came, I think I was already kind of on my, I was out of NDTV by 2017. And what do you make of the, how do you see NDTV changing if an Adani takeover does happen? Or how do you see this whole thing play out? Because people view NDTV as still one of the last few channels that are 
you know reporting uh, that is still questioning the government it's not doing the hindu muslim you know hate nonsense that happens in the rest of the shows so how do you see it change and how do you view this whole takeover i view it quite simply as mukesh ambani having sold a company to gautam adani that is what that's is how I, you view it yes okay. i uh, because I, I i i just think that what it actually should compel us to talk about is how news is funded hmm. it should actually compel us to talk about the broken revenue models of tv news hmm. the fact that this loan had to be taken the fact that it was not paid back over 13 years the fact that the loan very clearly stipulates that if you don't pay back the loan we effectively can now or later own this percentage of the company hmm. from my understanding there's also other sort of in you know uh, funds that also link back uh, uh, to outside owners and obviously this was known hmm. right hmm. so it's changed hands from one business baron to another business baron which should make a step back and say okay is the only revenue model left in this country for business houses to run big tv channels that is the or then government advertising or government Ooh. advertising which we hardly ever speak about right hmm. now again i will say that there's a lot i will not say because i do not want to talk about an old set of colleagues at a time when they are going through a hardship but i will say that that is how i see it that one big guy sold his company to another big guy hmm. and the people who 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 took the loan obviously they were you know they would know best why pranoy pranoy would know best why he couldn't repay the loan but the company was always vulnerable the company was effectively open to a reliance takeover and instead of a reliance takeover you had an adani takeover now my question is how is that morally how is one morally different from the other i don't hmm. i don't know you tell me how is it the larger question then is the yeah how does television news sustain itself and that also yeah. gets us to the quality of yeah tv news yeah uh, two very quick questions i have on it one is uh you know a lot of people ask and they wonder that the shift that has happened it is not as if television wasn't partisan yeah. but today you're in an age of hyper partisanship yeah and a lot of people uh wonder whether this is ideological is it and you know you have your peers still in the industry is the complete u turn and a complete bhakti of sorts mm-hmm. that you see or uh, forget even politics if you look at what happened with sushant uh, yeah. riya case yeah that's got nothing yeah. to do with left right bjp yeah, yeah. congress but that sheer circus that was built around that one event uh, one is that is this uh, and when you look at the you know the sort of discourse around minorities in our television news is it ideological are anchors driven by to your mind is it ideological is it market forces defining that okay ye chal raha hai to ye becho uh, or like you said like if it's going to be government advertising or big businesses who also then have to keep governments in favor yeah if they're going to be the big guys who run television then this is what it was inevitable you know this is what's going to happen yeah so how do you place the so i <laughs> there are lots of questions in there look we don't have a way of knowing which anchors are doing this because they're ideological and which are doing this because they've been ordered to and for them it's just a job and tomorrow the uh, the powers that be change and they'll just change with them hmm. honestly do you think that will happen though like you'll see a, well, i don't see the day. politics changing so i don't see this changing but uh, i I want to say that between these two sets of people I would have more respect for the people who are ideological hmm. than for the people who simply go whichever way the power establishment goes. That said, I'm old hmm. school enough to have a problem with the polarization per se. 
Okay. Right? Which means, of course, I can't bear the kind of hate mongering that takes place. You know, I'm, I did a column for the Washington Post whose tagline is democracy dies in darkness. And I said in India, democracy dies in prime time. Hmm. Like, I really believe, and you know, you do so much excellent work on this, Manisha, that I really believe that TV news is a factory of hate hmm. today. That said, I really think that the answer to it is not liberal dogma, liberal cancel culture, uh, be that in your, in your personal spaces or in your, you know, if you're an, uh, an activist, you're a politician, but a journalist has to be sacred to a story. Hmm. Right. And I'll give you a very small example of the farmers protest. I ended up interviewing a man, man called Deep Sindhu, yeah. who's now died. I had no idea. I must confess who he was. Hmm. I simply saw a video of his. This is early on in the protest. I saw a video of his and he seemed like a very well-spoken person arguing with the police at a barricade. Hmm. So I told my producer that we interview him. Hmm. Okay, we set it up. It was an online interview he, and I was interviewing him. And that's the day when a lot of the right-wing trolls had started saying uh, there are Bhindranwale supporters. Khalistani. So I actually thought that this was a slur and I'll ask him and he'll say, no, and we'll move on. Hmm. To my absolute shock, I ask him this question and he launches into this big defense of Bhindranwale and I launch into this big argument and the interview goes sideways and for about five, seven, eight minutes we're having this I'm saying he wasn't a terrorist. He fought for strong fundamental structure. That's about it. Let's not you go into that. You don't think Hindranwale was a terrorist? You don't think Hindranwale no, was, was a terrorist? A... And you don't... When I finished the interview, I had young people in my team who clearly supported the farmer's agitation and said, you know, why did you ask him that question? I said, why should I not You're giving into the, the right-wing narrative. You have enabled. And I had people on the left who actually looked at that interview and said, I, who is kind of, you know, not exactly liked by the right-wing, I was that day called... Um, a fascist enabler. You are a fascist right-wing enabler because you have done this interview. Look, I think this is bunkum and it actually captures the crisis of what's happening in this polarized environment. Hmm. My job was to ask him that question. I didn't goad him to give an answer. Hmm. He could have said, this is not true. This is a way to defame our movement. I would have moved on to the next question. He's sitting there defending Janel Singh Bhindranwale. I'm old enough to remember 1984, the siege of the Golden Temple. I, I know this. I'm using historical memory to ask him counter questions. When this man eventually goes and plants that jhanda at the Red Fort, mm. I felt so vindicated. I remember telling Yugendra Yadav that Yugendra ji, if you guys had weeded this man out right after the interview, you knew what he was. You were still, you know, we had we had a full. The jhanda though was Nishan Saib, to be clear, on Red Fort. Huh? What did I say? No, no, no. You just said the flag, uh -huh. but just for our views, it wasn't. Oh, sorry, a sorry. Yeah. The context was that on 26 January, it's you know, along with the tricolor, the Nishan Sahib is yeah. gone and yeah. planted on, uh, at the Red Fort, and of course, this man then gets arrested, and he completely sullies for a long time the agitation, and you know, there's a there's a kind of freezing in the agitation, saying, "Oh my God, what just happened here? Why do I bring this example? Hmm. I cannot." Okay, there's certain things I won't platform, like rabid sexism, rabid uh, sort of name calling about other people's religions. I'm not talking about that. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying I cannot not do a story because there is some larger political cause that I'm committed to. No, I'm committed mm -hmm. to the story. My commitment is to the story, right? And I don't think that's both sidedism. It is what you discover. We did Bilkis Banu like 
like literally every single angle of it and we believed that the release of the convicts was wrong hmm. we got the mla who said yes sanskari brahmin hai uh, acche log hai which went viral we yeah. sent our reporters back who found that the convicts had gone underground it is not that we don't have a clear cut editorial moral center to what we do but it is based on facts it is not based on my personal political preference or ideological preference hmm. and i think the problem in journalism today is that too many journalists are countering the the sort of right wing hate mongering with a kind of polarized response of their own hmm. and that is leaving journalism in crisis you know as i i i said this in hindi once i said the problem is ki hamare patrakar ya hamari journalism jo hai usme ya ab chamcha hai ya murcha hai hmm patrakar kahan hai hmm right you and and so you cannot either be supplicants to power never hmm. but nor can it be the commitment of your journalism to i'll change this government i will a b or c or i am i am the left wing to this right wing hmm. you have to be this person who's committed to the story so being on the center is not a bad thing for you like it's become the much abused you know centrist is worse Look, than i don't see this as sitting right on the fence hmm. you see i don't see i've given you that's why i gave you the bilkis example which is we, we, there there can be a very very honest center to your work hmm. but you can have shades of how you approach an issue you don't have to be typecast hmm. by one ideology you don't have to be there there doesn't have to be a singularity to your identity which hmm. unfortunately and i think it's unfortunate today there is a singularity we've spoken a lot about television and 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 hmm. and, and, and right wing hate mongering but have we spoken enough about liberal dogma is does that is not that exist in, in the current environment where one side is demonizing muslims very clearly on a day to day basis do you and and liberals don't have that power a to uh, you know be an equationally so I, i understand your point about reactionary journalism that supporting a movement and then forgetting what's happening within the movement that, that's that just not something blind journalists eye, right? yeah whether it's even criticism of what farmers have you know uh, there's one uh, right wing sort of you know what they were doing for, in shaheen bagh for example where they would just you know throw thrust their mic at young women and they would want them to say something you know inflammatory or whatever or say something yeah. which doesn't go with the yeah. liberal view yeah. or whatever yeah. but the fact is we aren't liberal as a country so of course you can find all sorts of people in a protest but you use that one person to then defame that's one aspect of yeah. reporting and the other aspect is then completely turning a blind eye to anything that may be going wrong yeah. within the movement whether it's violence or whether it's a few elements which are rabble rousers but i'm not talking only about movements right i am not talking about street protests and people's protests i am saying that i would like to be defined by the robustness of the reporting that mm. we do as opposed to the larger ideological camp that i'm supposed to raise my hand and say i belong to this camp i'll give you my own example i am a ferocious feminist social liberal who cut my teeth reporting the military mm. so i have a lot of time for you know a certain amount of sentimentalism around soldiers i believe in it now for some people on the left it's this is jingoism it's also like you're accused of being the precursor to arnab goswami's nationalism that 
some people argue that you were the first to sort of inject honestly that. i would argue on an ideological this is nothing to do with journalism but if there was more of that kind of constitutional patriotism and understanding that 90% of this country feels like that about institutions of the state we wouldn't have the ornam goswami kind of nationalism mm-hmm. you let these people come in and co-opt because you didn't even understand that for most indians these things matter mm-hmm. you forgot to speak a language that is understood by most indians how is that a pat on the back for you i don't get it hmm. i don't get the self congratulation about uh, you know <laughs> and also the equivalence between you know i find the military i often actually write about this for example we talk about pluralism hmm. i was exposed to a military that didn't tolerate other people's faiths but actually participated in them hmm. right the commanding officer of a unit in india takes on the the religion at, during festivals of his soldiers so you will have uh, a, a hindu commanding officer offering namaz hmm. because if his regiment is you know a lot of people in his regiment are muslim and vice versa uh, there are sarv dharm sthals there is a mandir masjid gurdwara tradition there's a lot to understand and imbibe here the moment you start saying this if you're going to call this a precursor to ornam's hate mongering forget that it i find it amusing and farcical i find it completely like seeding hmm. seeding space this this space to talk about our our state the fact that you can be proud indians the fact that you can believe in that the state is larger than any government and hmm. that you believe in 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 the indian state the fact that we are not able to to say this uh, on the left without so many qualifications this is what has created ornam goswami i believe mm-hmm. and that can be a longer debate but i want to actually come to that yeah. my last question is putting you that but i want to come to quickly two last questions yeah. and now my questions will become a little longer mm-hmm. so you can take your time to respond also uh, now in your interview with madhu for your previous book mm-hmm. both of you go through the career defining stories of your life mm-hmm. you talk about kargil you talk about 2611 and you uh, kind of discuss everything that was right with what you did and everything that was wrong moments of self reflection and all that so you must watch that interview because it really does go through some I of those criticisms you got person. i was much younger when madhu interviewed me less uh, with but less but it was only like what 2016 i think so it's been about ago. no no it's not 4 years ago we're in 22 uh-huh. and i don't ah, think okay. it was 2016 it was earlier Was it was when news laundry like... had just launched when no, 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 that no, was no no two interviews one is right at the launch ah. 2012 and that was for your last book acha okay sorry anyway. we're doing <laughs> different interviews ha but ha. anyway so my point mm. is two things i want to revisit from there is one is the gujarat coverage because mm. that uh, we don't have any insights into the prime minister's mind mm. so we can't claim this to be a truism but it appears that much of the disdain he has for media the dislike which is very apparent in how he functions with even the you know media yeah. that sucks up to him that disdain and his supporters disdain for media comes from a feeling that he was a victim of a media hunt at that point that he was wrongly shown as uh, someone completely responsible you know lock stock and barrel for 2002 riots rajdeep in an interview with manu joseph in fact said that maybe we were wrong and this was the first televised riot uh, maybe we went overboard and it was praveen togadia who was running the streets and he basically says that perhaps that we should have paused at that point it was unfair point. of us to say that mr modi or anyone is responsible for the riots in the sense he didn't ask for the riot he didn't incite violence he was not in charge he was 6 months into power in gujarat the vhp ran he was not as powerful as people think no he was, he was not the vhp praveen togadia was the most powerful person in gujarat in 2002 he ran the what state. is your view of your reporting on gujarat uh and 
uh, there is of course this interview that says that Modi was very upset with what your reporting was and he gave you a call but you said no that never happened <laughs> but this is the interview to Madhu yeah. yeah but what I is the what is your assessment of your reporting in Gujarat yeah uh, how television media covered it because it was the first televised yeah. riot yeah. and the subsequent backlash that you and a lot of your peers got which you can see the effect of it till today in the sense of yeah. being denied access being denied an interview with the pm and stuff like that so one it's important to say that the prime minister never called me hmm. uh, he was not the prime minister then the chief minister he was the chief minister of gujarat never called me you have to also understand that i was not barkha then i was a reporter rajdeep was my boss hmm. right uh, the main uh, why this is important is that he would not call me because hmm. i was not i didn't hold any editorial position in ndtv i was a young reporter who along with other reporters had been tasked to different parts of gujarat hmm. and rajdeep was our as i said immediate supervisor so to that extent if there was a call it would have gone to rajdeep or it would have gone to pranoy because i was just an inconsequential cog in the hmm. ndtv wheel at the time and what i do remember about that time so one i was very shocked when i saw that clip and i know that i was kind of mentioned there but i had no interaction with him like none hmm none at all my my last memory of 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 meeting mr modi in friendly circumstances is when he was general secretary uh, of the party in the bjp headquarters and you would be able to walk in to the bjp headquarters and he used to be a very friendly person is very easy for a journalist to actually talk to him he was hmm. very you know this is pre his gujarat years during the gujarat riots and immediately afterwards i have never or since then Hmm. there's been no conversation between mr modi and me except once at the bjp headquarters i was one of the journalists there he said hello and i said hello and once i met him at a wedding and he said hello and i said hello and that has been the sum total of you know Your interaction. my interaction with him uh i think it's difficult to answer whether we would cover a riot in exactly the same way hmm. because a lot of things have changed including our understanding of how graphic an image can be uh whether you name communities or you don't whether your primary role is to deescalate a situation or to document it can you do both i think there is some merit in stepping back and asking just like we do about 2611 for example we know that we would not hmm. report Uh, a terror attack in the same way hmm. because we've learned some lessons in the same way from every story that you do you step back and you say okay were mistakes made uh you know i'll tell you for example so first for context i was sent to godra godra hmm. and like i said there were reporters fanned out so i didn't actually travel the whole state i did however meet bilkis banu this hmm. is why the story is very personal for me i i met her in a relief camp hours after she had been gang raped and a lot of my focus was what happened to the women hmm. and i uh, you know i feel deeply about about you know what happened to them and i continue to uh, sort of raise my voice for them as and when i can and is required but i remember that there was a factory that had been burnt and there was a page of the quran that was on the highway it had come loose from the book and it was on on you know it was burning hmm. and my cameraman took that image and in that harbadi that image went on and in the next bulletin we morphed it 
because our immediate priority was that we can't cause an adjoining, we can't put out an image that is going to maybe inflame further passion. passion. Yeah. So I'm giving this to you as an example of how you learn, you learn to, it's very difficult, but you learn to find that balance between documenting what you're seeing and also be responsible. And also as be much responsible as you can. at least without censoring to yourself. social order. Hmm. To social order, it's extremely important. We deal with this every day about hate speeches. We finally took a call that we would use hate speeches if we could contextualize them. But we don't always carry hate speeches unvarnished. We beep words, we blur out words. So this is an everyday learning. So I think there is some merit in stepping back and saying, you know, would we do it the same way again? Hmm. I don't know that. I don't, and I don't think the reason for that is BJP or Congress. Hmm. I think the reason for that is simply, just like you wouldn't cover a terror attack in the same way, from 2002 to 2022 is 20 years. Hmm. In 20 years, we've learned a lot about the impact of visuals, the impact of speeches, the how your priority has to be to be responsible to a lot, not censorship, but to a larger. What, what is the word? You don't want to inflame. But, yeah. You don't more. want to inflame more. But to the violence, point of. Right? Uh, so, of course, I think that it needs some hmm. examination. The reason I have not been able to do that much examination is I was too small a reporter in that storytelling. I wasn't taking any editorial decisions hmm. myself, right? But even that, I, I do believe that everything changes you know the way we cover religion the way we cover riots the way we cover conflict do you show a body do you not show a body mm -hmm. it comes up again and again and again for example that after 9-11 the american media didn't show coffins why do why, why does the indian media do it in 26-11 i was asked this all the time why are you talking to relatives who have people trapped inside mm -hmm. and i was like it's their agency surely mm -hmm. but that said I can listen to an argument which says that, listen, if the government is right now trying to get those people out alive, should there be a bar? But then there needs to be guidance. So I'm just saying everything is not as simple as this is censorship or this is anti-censor. We don't, in a precarious situation where the priority is to save lives, hmm. your priority can't be that we will see. But in terms of questioning the state government, which also after 2002, you wouldn't say that that was unfair. That was just, he rightly was questioned the way he should have been. That is not a point of uh, thing, rethinking that you would get into. <laughs> I mean... Or do uh, you think he was unfairly... I, it was a, there was an extract from Ruchi Sharma's book that spoke about a dinner where Pranaroy had gone. And I heard about it. this dinner yeah. uh, where, <laughs> so, where, where Pranoy and he got into an argument yeah, yeah, as yeah. in Shekhar. That's the same dinner, yeah, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But uh, I was not at the dinner. Like I said... like But I, there you wouldn't apologize for your stance on... No. no, but I wouldn't at the same time call him to dinner, right? And then get into some massive argument with him. <laughs> so I'm saying these are, these are things that I don't fully understand. But like I said, I have not been in this power play. I was very, very, very young. I was not at these dinners. I've never met Mr. But Kobe. you were a big face in NTV. Okay, not during 2002, afterwards. Did you ever have uh, BJP leaders come up to you and say that uh, this sense that NTV was unfair to Modi? Was that ever communicated to you through any other leader within the BJP, even no, though you said I that mean, Mr. I think, Modi, you never I, I think we knew after Rajdeep left and, you know, as, hmm. otherwise he would have been the interface or whatever. I think we, we certainly knew that Mr. Modi didn't like us 
um, and didn't and 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 we didn't know if the historicity of it went back to 2002. Did it go back to this dinner that you talk about? Um, we knew that, hmm. but I will say that the BJP till very recently remained not Mr. Modi, but the rest of the BJP was absolutely accessible to meet, hmm. uh, to talk, to interview. Um, when did that change? More than the Congress. More than the Congress sometimes. More than the Gandhis, I should say, not more than the Congress. But when did that change for you? I think it appears to have changed after I left NDTV. It, mm. it, it appears to have, uh, I think till I was at NDTV, you could have BJP people on your shows. You could get interviews with BJP ministers. Maybe you'd never get, I interviewed Amit Shah in 2000 and. 14. Hmm. I mean, I followed him from campaign to campaign till he kind of saw me just being a pest. Hmm. And, and, he, wa and was it off camera, of course not on camera, but was he, because he could be quite standoffish sometimes with reporters. Did you get that sense that he wasn't, you know, fond of you or fond of NDTV's brand or this liberal looking I mean, kind of thing? I, that... I don't think it's a secret <laughs> that they don't uh, <laughs> like. Uh, no, but what media. I'm trying to understand is that. But I don't think they like the people that who have access to them either. I think that's what's important to understand that I think what I think what the BJP uh, has done in a very in a way that raises questions and again I'll go back to my larger point Manisha that we have to stop being so politician obsessed mm. right because if your journalism is going to be big okay there's this much salied phrase called access journalism the left mm. uses it more than the right Are ye to access journalists hai. first I want to say that access is an important element of obtaining information hmm. okay let's not deride it uh, in at the White House when Trump took away the credentials of CNN journalist Jim Acosta even Fox News rallied in support of we won't come for these press conferences yeah. if you don't give yeah. this access access is not a bad word because you need to meet people to understand what's happening hmm. however here I think it's quite clear that how the BGP under Narendra Modi and Amit Shah changed the game hmm was that they simply bypassed the mainstream media and started communicating directly with hmm. as they saw it. I'm now right now thinking from their point of view with people, the audience and they use social media so effectively that now every politician has had to play catch up in the same template. So do they like us, the liberals who were around, you know, uh, Khan Market gang, whatever? No, they don't. But do they like the people who suck up to them, I don't think they like them either. I think they just think that journalists are dispensable. I think it's a very important point you made because yeah. you can see it in his body language also. I think the respect that he showed to Akshay Kumar even when he was being interviewed, it's a different body language together. It seemed like he's talking to an equal. Yeah. Whereas when he talks to a Sudhir or even a Navikra or a Rahul Shankar, it's very clear that he's, you know, there's this kind of a disdain for even those who I think, going I, I think Kumi Kapoor had an excellent <laughs> article in the Indian Express recently on the irrelevance of media hmm. to the politics of this country. And I think we should be gracious or realistic enough to acknowledge that if we continue to remain obsessed with political journalism, we will be majorly irrelevant. Really nobody- Because they have made- Because they don't the need- they, Okay, why do politicians talk to media? Because they want, they use media everywhere in the world to put out their narrative. Hmm. And the journalists, it's a back and forth. You question them, you hold power to account. But why are they talking to you? They're talking to you because they think that some way you can influence their narrative. Hmm. The BJP has successfully shown that it doesn't need 
mainstream, old, new, digital, print, any media to define its narrative. The Reuters Institute study shows that the two most common sources of news today or information today are WhatsApp and YouTube. This should be a humbling moment for journalists who have to stop being obsessed with politicians and political journalism because you are only reconfirming your own irrelevance. This much has shifted and you have to shift with the shift. We can have this conversation and I can go on and on but just one point I want to add is that uh, sure they don't need journalists but I also think they really do need the media and you see it in the near total control that they've been able to exercise on narrative and mainstream television news. And I don't think it's just some I don't joke. agree with that. I don't how is it? And, and then I don't know how true it is, but you had... Uh, it's their narrative and their narrative is something that they're able to communicate whether or not a channel will cover it. They're able to communicate But I don't think they would be media. okay with the, the kind of surveys you've seen, the IT surveys, the raids, the jailing of journalists. Who it's very clear. Okay? the government I'm saying, it's also very clear that they want an iron control on the media. So it's also not that, okay, we don't care about you, we'll bypass you, you can say whatever you want to say, we'll talk to our audience. There's that talking to the audience that's happening one-on-one, -on -one, but there's also the need, I think a very deep need within the government to control the media narrative and you see that play out every night on television news. So that's my limited point, but I'll come to my last question. Um, we spoke about uh, you know, you saying that you were unfairly written about in the caravan on Radia and now... I mean, I don't remember it very well, yeah. but I remember thinking But, okay, this has yeah. been a question that's been asked you yeah, a number yeah, of times yeah. and you've, you know, offered clarifications a lot of times, so I don't want to go into that. But what I do want to ask you to weigh in on this, uh, we've seen two phenomena. One is the rise of Modi and the right-wing media and you've seen the downfall of Congress and liberal Lutians media. Mm -hmm of which NDTV became the face and you as an employee of NDTV also became the face of this liberal media that must be brought down, that is corrupt, that is too close to power, cemented with the Radia tapes where the central question was, why were you so close to power? Even though you've said many times that, you know, stories were not changed, stories were not manipulated, judge the stories independently of how I spoke to my source and it's true that a lot of uh, beat reporters, my friends of mine who do beat reporting would say that dude we talk to sources you know in many ways yeah. we want to get that information out and we'll say five useless things to get that one piece of information out and after Radia's when we realize okay now we need to be careful how we talk to our sources. And I can bet you they still talk know? in the same way though. So that, there's that aspect of it which you've covered yeah. and which everyone's debated yeah. on and on but there's this aspect of even the worst critics of Arnab would say that, look, NDTV was this space which was a cozy club. You had to look a certain way, speak a certain way, be connected to a certain family to rise in that ecosystem. Arnab was this guy, you could look anywhere, you could talk anywhere, you could come from nowhere and he'd give you space. And you didn't have to be a connected elite to rise in that mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. Which is what you say almost about the, you know, BJP in that sense, that you don't have to, the Congress... It doesn't have to work like in the Congress that you need to be connected. You rise, you can be yeah, a nobody yeah, and then yeah, rise yeah, up. Yeah. So, how do you view this now? One, you and NDTV as this face of Lutian's elite. Mm. Do you think there's some merit in this criticism for NDTV and the world of NDTV? Okay, there's a bunch of questions. <laughs> let's let's tackle the Radia tapes. I, if you want my honest feeling, although I think it's so wasteful to talk about it, but since we are talking about it, I actually think that I was way too apologetic about explaining to every person who asked me and judging me. I would totally, I, I, I believed what I said then. I was talking to a source and 
the source was going to tell me, you know, what a certain party was thinking about joining government or not. Let me talk to him, talking to Gulam. Did you really go and speak to Gulam no, Nabi? No, and Gulam Nabi issued a statement which nobody cared about, saying she never called me. The last time I spoke to her was when I was Chief Minister of Jammu and Kashmir. Handar, I saw. So ironic that Mr. Vinod Mehta apparently writes in his book about how he was lunching with Mr. A. Raja and he admired his safari suit. And I've never even met the man that Vinod Mehta accused me of lobbying for. But Vinod Mehta's been out to lunch with him. I don't see anybody tapping Mr. Mehta's phones or giving us a piece-by-piece -piece account of Vinod Mehta's lunch with A. Raja. If you think journalists, politicians, corporates, people who you cultivate as sources for information do not talk like this, I think you have had recently Mr. Ornab Goswami's own WhatsApp chats leaked. Hmm. You have had recently uh, a, a former India Today correspondence uh, chats or phone call leaked when she went but to Hathras. But we criticized that, right? Like we, we you criticized the that. leak, you didn't criticize the content. You we did. We no, this is the problem. The we had this like is the problem. long uh, pieces on why that and content I, was problematic. And, and I am saying that all mm. of it is problematic and the journalists of India did this to themselves by judging other journalists on the radia tapes. We have forever given away our right to privacy of conversation with the source. We have we have demolished it because you can't be the person who got all judgy on the radio tapes and, you know, MK Venu, Barkha Datveer, Sangvi and many other people who are on those tapes, Navika, mm. um, Navika I think Rohini. There's so many journalists. It's just that only three of us, whatever, got highlighted, maybe Venu, Veer and me. Um, but you can't be all judgy about, oh, ye conversation hai. and But today, oh, let no one listen in on my conversation. Let no one listen in on my what. It doesn't work both ways. We, we made, I think the only person who actually made this point at that time was Shekhar Gupta. We made a, hmm. as an industry, when I say we, as an industry, we made a fatal error because we saw it as an excuse just to pull down our competitors. That's what it was. I don't buy into this whole you know, oh, it was an epochal moment that exposed but, media. But I think, you know, here, hang on. I do think it was that first dhakka to trust in media as this neutral purveyor only of current the, affairs. Only, in the, only because of the way other media presented it. Hmm. Media did this to media. media See, again, like my thing is not that not the content of your story or what you did as a journalist. I think the big critique was the closeness to power. What was the closeness? To which I today right-wing media says that this is not Sorry. how it was. Hmm. I knew many BJP leaders much better than I know Congress leaders even today. Hmm. This is a completely flawed understanding of how journalism actually works. Hmm. And secondly, I think media did this to media because it actually simply wanted to pull down some people they thought as successful media stars a few notches. They wanted to be supercilious and moralistic about it, so they did it. But hmm. Let's take your larger point about elitism, about social elitism and the coincidence between liberal elitism and social elitism. And I think there's some truth to that. Hmm. I actually think I... So here's the funny thing. I think, again, it's, a, it's I'm sounding like one of those boomer aunties saying my generation, my generation. But as a first generation, Orna, me, Rajdeep, we were the same... We were not the same hierarchy. Rajdeep was our boss. Hmm. But we were the same... Gener, we were the same vintage. And we would not actually, we didn't actually look a certain way. If you look at the first generation of Indian TV, we didn't dress up for camera. Hmm. You know, I had short hair and wore khadi kurta, barely wore makeup. The boys wore ill-fitting suits. They weren't exactly, we weren't exactly like the glamorous people of TV, hmm. ever. But elite nonetheless, no? No, one minute. Let's hmm. first come to the glamour or the hmm. way a television anchor looks today. We didn't look like that. Hmm. We didn't look like that. 
even NDTV later became a much more gentrified anchor started looking they were branded they were branded none of us did that I wore mm. kurta I've worn kurtas for as long as I've been on camera right um, never wore it you know hardly ever wore a jacket I can't say never I must have worn at some point but hardly ever mm. elite I didn't think of myself as elite I thought of myself as a middle class person who's you know who didn't have a lot of money. My father didn't have a lot of money. He was a single parent. I wouldn't have been able to study abroad if I hadn't got a scholarship. So I didn't think of myself as elite hmm. at all. Hmm. Uh, but today when I step back as a student of politics, I do see a coincidence between liberal elites, media elite, hmm. and the old political elite. Hmm. Doesn't mean they were close. They were, they were personally close. I used to say all the time about the BJP, that the BJP, not now but then, as an opposition party in particular, but even when it was in power under Vajpayee, hmm. please also remember that we have also lived through yeah, that phase, exactly. right? While you were covering Gujarat, for example, right? Yeah, hmm. I never lost access to the BJP after covering Gujarat. Hmm. No one stopped talking to you in central government or anything like that. And the BJP was like your neighbor in a middle class or an upper middle class house, but middle class. I grew up in a refugee colony, Jangpura extension of Delhi, originally a refugee colony, very middle class, where you could go to your neighbor's house, have a really big argument over, uh, I don't know, the place of Muslims, the place of women, and then ended amicably by saying, bache samosa ka ke jao. Hmm. They were friendly and argumentative. LK Advani used to ring me up and disagree with everything I did and call me home for chai and have an argument with me and I would have an argument with him and I would go home and this was normal and by the way this was not how the Gandhis were hmm. please let's also understand that these tropes that we make in our head that there is elite and then there is you know Khan market and then there is Gandhis and they're all very close this is not how it worked the Gandhis were notoriously unfriendly uh, and inaccessible to the media hmm. and did we make the amount of noise about it that we make about Mr. Modi and Mr. Shah, about Modi and Shah? We don't. Hmm. We have to also own up to our own, uh, I, don't, I don't know, is it hypocrisy? Why didn't we notice it in the same way? Why didn't we judge Sonia Gandhi for not talking? Yes, Manmohan Singh was a Democrat. He took all questions. He was, uh, he was genuinely a Democrat. Hmm. The way he was pilloried by the media and he continued to never shut off access, Kudos to him for that. But the people who really wielded power in, in, in the Congress party were the Gandhis. And the Gandhis were, even though I landed the first major interview with Priyanka Gandhi Badra, where was the access that the Gandhis gave? And do media, does do, do us as liberals judge the Gandhis for that lack of access in the same way that we judge Modi Shah? I don't think we do. So I think this imagined reality, even by the right wing, is so flawed that if they are criticizing the BJP, it must mean they're very thick with the Gandhis. This is not that how it happen. works. But is there a pushback against elites in media, in politics? Hmm. Yes. Is there a comeuppance for us having lived too long in our echo chambers, not stepping out, not meeting enough people from either other socioeconomic spaces or from spaces that that don't think like us hmm. yes i think we have to, this is a global phenomenon and we can't pretend that we are only victims we are also here because of our navel gazing hmm. little universes like i said where journalists are just obsessed with other journalists hmm. this has happened to us a lot because of that i think
that's some lots of thought there for the right. Have we gone well the, beyond the time that we were meant to talk? <laughs> okay, I'm gonna let you go because I know you have a yeah. full day of work ahead. But one last question, yeah. uh, which made me think. Actually, I thought I'll come back to was to it towards the end when you spoke about you loving journalism. Yeah, like yeah, this is yeah. my first love. This yeah. is what I really love, and this is who I am. And sometimes I think, and we have this conversation with our friends in the media that, especially for broadcast media, is there a certain sort of a person who can rise up in broadcast hmm. uh loving the profession is one thing but they also have to be in love with themselves uh and them being the storytellers megalomania is a bit of a sort of a harsh word you're saying that I'm there's saying a that narcissism in being on camera certain, that a, there's only a certain sort of an animal that will rise up in tv uh the way you know some people have only if they're invested in themselves hmm. and there's a sort of a self self love hmm. is uh, pleasant word but what do i say you're um, saying narcissism self importance you're saying yeah. narcissism i think that's not okay so listen you have to locate this question in the kind of tv you're talking about or the kind of broadcast media you're talking about i don't relate to tv news today hmm. i i could never be some uh, sort of i don't know branded clothed anchor whose hair was styled whose makeup was perfect sitting under the arc lights reading from a teleprompter hmm. i've never used a teleprompter in my life right i don't know how to do i don't know how to be that so i don't know what it requires to be that because that isn't in me i think that the certain kind of animal as i understand who can rise in in this is someone who's consumed by news by news news junkie you and by but i've got to be there i've mm. got to be part of what's happening in my country in an immediate sort of way i want to have a say in it i want to be a chronicler of it i think those are the things that drive it i think it's a pain to be on camera who wants to every day say to oh, abhi lighting aisa hai abhi makeup karo who wants to do it? i mean there must be people who want to do it i'm not i'm not one of those and i'm saying therefore when you raise this question of what it takes you have to locate it to what kind of broadcast journalism are you speaking about I think narcissism in media and self-importance existed well before television. I think mm -hmm. our old legendary Akbar Wala's had it in a very mm -hmm. different kind of way. They actually thought they made and broke governments. Nobody yeah. calls them compromised. <laughs> they write in their chronicles. Nobody goes after them. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody goes after them. Why? I think this has become an age where journalists want to pull down other journalists. That is actually what has happened. You say that on news journey, but we do so much dhulai. ये तो हमारा काम है. If we don't do that, then <laughs> no. But fair dhulai. But, but this is but this is what I believe. I believe that you know it's. Um, but maybe I think also there's something. To, sorry to cut you in, but uh, there is this uh, there is merit also to us ecosystem that calls each other out because you're all in check. I don't know. Fairly, I mean, I'm not saying. How many stories have been done on news journey? I'm not saying. How unfair. many stories, for example? We'd love to. No, have people do it, but it's just that no one wants to report on the media, and then those who may want to do it would rather just send us court notices than do a story on us. Yeah. So I think there's also great merit in having an ecosystem, not unfairly and not in a trollish but way, and not the, for the fun. Who is the arbiter of that, right? I mean, there's no arbiter, and we news journalists can certainly not say we will decide now who's going to do that. That's right. That. We also have See, to be open problem, to the fact that you know, the problem, if any. I mean, I'm not scared of any question. I mm. never have any pre-scripted questions. I never say I want yeah. to talk. You asked me whatever you wanted to. I had no idea what you would ask me. I'm answered yeah. it the way I wanted to. So it's not about the fear of questions. My problem is that there's a certain. If you're talking about the inherent possible narcissism, broadcast journalists, I also think there's an inherent pomposity uh, or superciliousness in 
being the arbiter of what you believe hmm. is morality in media. Hmm. Equally, that question could be thrown back, let's say, at a news laundry, opinion but you Right? But everyone should ask each other. I know, like we are, but I'm saying, I'm saying by the end of it, I find it so wasteful, I'd rather focus on the story. I literally, you know, I, I do very few interviews on media with media, almost hmm. none. Uh, not again, because I am at all timid or mild or petrified of any question. On the contrary, I find that I spend a lot of time in talking, I talk, you know, I, hmm. instead of working. And I want to focus all of this energy on telling stories. And hmm. I think, I think that you, when you, you know, I am now old enough to understand that people's motivations to judge you come from a host of places and they're not always from some benign public interest in the quality of journalism. Hmm. That's all I'm saying. But this yeah. can go on. But <laughs> Let's stop. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anisha. For taking out the time and talking to us. And yeah, we should continue this. <laughs> Ongoing Thank dialogue. Thank you so much, guys, for watching this. This interview is behind the paywall. So you have to be a subscriber to watch it. Please subscribe to newslaundry.com. Check out the full interview and remember you got to pay to keep news free.